Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nail It Ortho podcast. I am Dr. Cole. I am one of the hosts of this podcast. Myself and Dr. Fitz started out this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE review. So if you are a returning listener, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, please hit that subscribe button and tell a friend. And also, we are working on some notes and kind of a podcast companion um, to this podcast series. So if you want to get early dibs or put your email in the description below or, you know, in our show notes, you will be able to see a link where you can click and put your info in there. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. You know, especially if you're going into sports, there are uh, many places that have uh, hip centers and, you know, we're doing more and more hip scopes. But uh, so what are what are some of the indications for hip arthroscopy? Um, so yeah, hip arthroscopy is kind of a, a specialty in and of itself, which is why, yeah, like you said, those hip centers or hip preservation, uh, specialists are popping up, uh, kind of everywhere. Um, but the most common diagnoses, uh, that are treated with hip scopes now that used to be treated as, uh, open, and I'm talking like major open procedures with, greater trochanter uh, osteotomies and uh, hip dislocations and all of that. But um, femoral acetabular impingement, uh, uh, acetabular labral tears, intraarticular loose bodies, um, iliopsoas disorders, uh, synovitis, even um, some uh, hamstring avulsion injuries off the uh, ischium uh, are treated with hip arthroscopy, whereas they were classically treated with big open procedures beforehand. Um, but with all of the benefits that we know that can come from hip arthroscopy, um, in what situations will it, uh, or could it potentially lead to more inferior results? Yeah. So you want to be careful about doing, um, doing hip scopes and patients that have, you know, really bad arthritis, um, patients that have like a severe pincer lesion, uh, of the of the acetabulum, like they have a circumferential pincer lesion, you want to be uh, that may you know lead to inferior results if you do a hip scope in those patients. Um, patients that have moderate to severe DDH or developmental dysplasia of the hip, which we'll get into here in a bit, um, those are patients that you may uh, not want to hip scope uh, right away. You may want to address the underlying pathology. And then also patients that have had an extensive capsulectomy in the past uh, that have unstable hips. Those may be uh, patients that have poor or inferior results with hip arthroscopy. So these are the ones that you want to be careful about, um, you know, performing hip arthroscopy in these patients. And, um, and since we're talking about hip arthroscopy, are there any risks with prolonged traction during hip arthroscopy? Say it's a long case, three, four hour case for some reason, and you need some traction in order to get some good visualization or repair the labrum or whatever you're doing. Is there any uh, risks associated with this? Uh, there are, unfortunately. So uh, similar to uh, traction post for a fracture table, um, you can get a, a pudendal nerve palsy uh, second to that secondary to that perennial post. Um, 
but uh, other things, uh, we've kind of worked around that here locally. Um, our hip specialist uh, uses something mm -hmm. called, a, it's called like the pink pad or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's, that's what, and I think that's how it's actually marketed. <laughs> uh, not okay. that I have any uh, financial uh, <laughs> stock. <laughs> um, but what it is, is it's a, um, it's kind of a uh, sticky type pad that you put the patient directly onto and it uh, creates enough friction between the patient and the table that you can pull traction on the leg, but the patient still stays on the bed. So you, you don't have that perineal post anymore. So you lose that risk with it, mm. which is the lot. But at the same time, you are only relying on the friction of the pad and so it, if you need more traction, you do run the risk of not having the post there and pulling too much traction and causing the patient to slip. But it's, it's, a, it's finding that fine balance between what you know that the patient can tolerate and what not with the traction. But uh, another unfortunate thing that I've seen uh, here is... Um, a claw toe deformity uh, after being in oh. a traction boot for so long, uh, just because of the uh, pressure posterior lean on the uh, posterior compartment uh, has led to a patient getting a claw toe deformity. I don't think that that oh, will wow. be tested, but it's just something to keep in mind for any budding hip arthroscopists out there that these boots are not, not benign the best yeah i mean you need to you need to really pad them and so when we're working with our hip uh specialist here in town um i mean it's there's a lot of extra precautions taken to make sure that the boots are well padded so uh pressure ulcers from the boots as well you want to prevent those and uh but i think the most common thing for testing purposes is going to be that pudendal nerve palsy from that uh perineal post um, and, uh, kind of moving along from, uh, the risks of, uh, hip arthroscopy, um, let's say we have our patient on the table and we're ready to get started on the case. What portals are most commonly used and, uh, what structures are at risk? Yeah. So, you know, three, three of the main portals that you, that you should know about, uh, the first ones are in relationship to the greater tuberosity. So you have your anterior lateral and posterior lateral portals, and you just have a straight anterior portal. And so for your anterior lateral portal, uh, again, which is anterior and lateral, so the greater tuberosity, your superior gluteal nerve is at risk. Uh, for your posterior lateral uh, uh, portal, which is, again, posterior and lateral, so the greater tuberosity, uh, your sciatic nerve is going to be at risk, and this is going to be especially with external rotation. So that's, you should know that. So if there is a, a hip that is externally rotated and you're going to do the posterior lateral portal, uh, you must uh, be careful not to injure the sciatic nerve. And then for your anterior portal, which is you know, direct anterior, we're not talking about the anterior lateral portal, we're talking about anterior portal. Uh, you're going to have more uh, common injury to your lateral femoral cutaneous nerve of the thigh uh, versus your femoral nerve. So again, these patients, you know, they may say, oh, this patient, uh, you know, they had a hip scope in and now they're complaining about anterior thigh pain. 
Uh, you need to be able to identify that they are likely trying to lead you towards a, a injury to the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve. And since we're on the, the topic of hip arthroscopy and, uh, you know, we just discussed the portals, um, what are some of the compartments used for hip arthroscopy? And, when I, and, and I don't know why it took me like a, a while, but like when I when we were making the notes for this, I finally just Googled it and stared at the image for like five minutes. And I was like, okay, that, that makes more sense as far as these compartments are concerned. Uh, but yeah. what, are, what are the compartments? Uh, to, to start off, you have your central, which is an intraarticular portion um, between the cartilaginous portions of the proximal femur and acetabulum. And uh, what is mostly done in this kind of compartment, this intraarticular central compartment is uh, labral repair and chondroplasty plus or minus an acetabuloplasty for a pincer lesion. Um, the peripheral compartment is also intraarticular, but it's more along the uh, femoral neck. Uh, and that's where the femoroplasty is going to occur for a cam type uh, FAI. And then you have the lateral compartment, which is extra articular in the peritrochanteric region and troch bursa. And uh, that's where you're gonna be doing a lot of the uh, glute medius repairs, uh, iliotibial band releases, um, trochanteric bursitis uh, or bursectomy. Um, and I really think that that's just about it for the uh, lateral compartment. Um, but we've uh, done a lot of kind of brief skimming of FAI and uh, <laughs> all of that. And I know that the audience out there just can't wait to, uh, they are waiting. to hear more about it because of <laughs> how interesting and uh, yeah, I find it, which is none at all. I'm going into tumor. So I'm seeing <laughs> as possible. Uh, but oh, man. It's a real diagnosis, and I do give our hip arthroscopist a, a hard time about uh, his job and in, in treating uh, the athletes. But uh, let's let's go into it. Let's talk about it and 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 learn about it. All right, uh, let's do it. So so FAI, you know what it is in general is you have abnormal contact between the proximal femur and the acetabulum. You know, and this can lead to chondral damage and symptoms when you just big picture, big umbrella, you know, type thing is that you have abnormal contact between the proximal femur, acetabulum, and then this can lead to chondral damage and symptoms, including hip pain. Now, when we're, um, when you're looking at an AP of the pelvis and you're evaluating for FAI or femoral acetabular impingement, you know, you have this, you know, uh, you know, 24 year old uh, female athlete, who comes in complaining of hip pain for a long period of time, uh, you say, okay, well, we'll send you to the x-ray and they get an AP pelvis. What are some of the things that you want to be on the lookout for on an AP pelvis? Uh, yeah, so overall, uh, acetabular morphology is the kind of big thing you're looking for. Also proximal femur uh, morphology, uh, but on the uh, AP, that's when you can look at uh, what's called the crossover sign. And uh, the crossover sign uh, is also talked about kind of in trauma as well when looking for posterior wall acetabular fractures. But um, 
what it is is uh, on a normal AP pelvis, the posterior wall should be lateral to the uh, anterior wall. When you're when you're looking at it, there shouldn't be a crossover. But if you see a crossover, and it's it's difficult to kind of describe in words what you're looking for. So if you're listening to this, you haven't really heard much about FAI, you want to learn more about it, just Google crossover sign AP pelvis, and you'll start to understand that um, when the acetabular cup is in its normal anaverted state, the anterior wall is going to be more medial than the posterior wall. But in FAI, you see a little bit more of a acetabular retroversion, which causes the anterior wall to actually project more laterally than the posterior wall. And that's what that crossover sign is. Um, but other things you're looking out for are the center edge angle and notably the lateral center edge angle, which is a vertical line along the longitudinal axis of the pelvis to align towards the edge of the sourceal and uh, again, Googling this uh, is going to be the kind of key here while you're listening to this talk. And uh, the lateral center edge angle is describing how much lateral coverage you have of the femoral head in comparison to the uh, acetabulum. So the normal lateral center edge angle is 25 to uh, 40 degrees. Uh, whereas in hip dysplasia, the center edge angle is going to be less than 20 degrees. And in femoral acetabular impingement, it's going to be greater than 40 degrees. So uh, with dysplasia, you're going to have under coverage of the femoral head. And with uh, FAI and notably pincer type FAI, you're going to have over coverage of the uh, femoral head. And uh, then moving down to the proximal femur is uh, what's known as a pistol grip uh, deformity or a non-spherical femoral head. And that's gonna be more of the uh, cam lesion on the uh, femoral side that contributes to the femoral acetabular impingement. Um, but then uh, that's just the AP, uh, just wait, there's more. <laughs> so those commercials, just wait. <laughs> exactly. Uh, on lateral or false profile views uh, of the pelvis, uh, what do you look for? Yeah, so on, on lateral views, one of the big things that you can look for is the alpha angle. And this is going to be the angle between one line down the middle of the neck to the center of the femoral head, and then another line, which is going to be at the point which the femoral neck exits the circle. So if you draw a circle around the femoral neck, there'll, there'll be a there'll be a um, a point where the where the neck exits the circle, and so you get the angle between those two lines. And normally it should be less than fifty, but if it's greater than fifty-five, uh, that is kind of uh, diagnostic or or you know clues you in towards these patients may have a cam morphology. And you know, mentioning cam morphology, what are what are the types of uh, FAI or femoral acetabular impingement? Uh, there's cam impingement, which is what you were just talking about, which is a kind of extra bone at the uh, anterior superior head and neck junction of the femur, 
And then there's pincer lesions, which are uh, over coverage of the acetabulum. And uh, they are usually not exclusive of one another. You do mostly see combined lesions in most patients. And um, that's really the difficulty in treating them is um, you have to treat both the cam lesion, the pincer lesion, and any sort of labral or chondral derangements that they have inside the hip. And uh, I mean, that's, that's quite the task to do with a scope and a shaver. So um, that's what, that's what really makes these, these patients difficult is uh, just the combined nature of their pathology. Um, I'll, I'll go into cam impingement now, and then I'll, I'll have you kind of talk about the pincer type impingement, but, yeah. uh, but cam impingement, yeah, that non-spherical femoral head, it's on the anterior lateral aspect and in hip flexion, that, uh, aspherical head creates a shearing force along the acetabular uh, cartilage, which leads to initial delamination and bruising, and then a, a labral injury uh, at the chondrolabral junction. Um, and so uh, that's, that's a question I've seen. I don't recall directly on an OIT, but definitely in ortho bullets where um, it talks about kind of the progression of the pathology. And it's really that aspherical head contacting the cartilage and then leading to cartilage damage, delamination, and then it starts to affect the labrum and cause a labral tear. And uh, the treatment for this is uh, key for getting that femoroplasty or shaving down the cam lesion so that when the hip does go into flexion, that extra bone doesn't continue uh, hitting prematurely on the uh, cartilage and uh, acetabular uh, labrum. Um, but what's a, what's the pincer type impingement? Yeah. So when we're looking at pincer impingement, which is, which is more common in like these middle-aged females, uh, this is when you have acetabular overcoverage. So like you said, the cam, uh, the cam impingement is when you have the non-spherical uh, femoral head, but the pincer is when you have acetabular overcoverage. And this leads to abnormal contact uh, between the acetabular rim and the femoral head slash neck junction. So what this, uh, what this leads to is intrasubstance tears of the labrum. And you know a common test question is what quadrant is most common? And that's gonna be the anterior superior quadrant uh, of the labrum is gonna be most uh, common. And another thing is that you have a kind of have this contracoup um, lesion or, or, or injury or this chondral injury that is usually gonna be posterior inferior. Uh, so the literally the exact opposite. So, uh, but most commonly with pincer uh, lesions, you have um, tears uh, in the labrum at the anterior superior uh, quadrant, and the chondral injury when when it happens is going to be on the other end, which is going to be posteriorly and inferiorly. And you treat these by pretty much shaving down that lesion or acetabuloplasty uh, plus uh, repair of the labral tears. Uh, so what is, you know, we just mentioned, we just spoke about the cam lesion and you did a great job talking about how that aspherical femoral head leads that, that, that delamination, um, secondary to those shearing forces along the acetabulum, 
uh, which ends up, you know, leading to labral tear later on in the process. And then we just talked about uh, pincer impingement. Uh, what is the most common reason for uh, revision surgery in patients that have this femoral tablet impingement? Well, I kind of hinted at it a little bit before because it is uh, such a complex kind of series of pathology and no one FAI is the same as the other, but it's really that persistent FAI even after they've been treated surgically. And um, I'm sure you've seen it or you will if you if you work with a hip arthroscopist in the future. But I mean, because we're the academic center here in town, uh, we're the more tertiary referral for any either failed FAI or persistent FAI. And so we see a lot of this in our hip preservation practice here is um, they, they come back six, 12 months after their surgery and they're like, hey, I, I still have these symptoms. I, my treating surgeon hasn't uh, quite kind of figured out exactly what's going on or, or whatever. And when you really scrutinize the imaging, you can see that yeah, their alpha angle is probably still a little bit greater than 50. So they might still have some residual cam impingement or th their cam impingement was never uh, addressed in the first place. And that's really what I've seen the most. Um, not, that's purely anecdotal. I wouldn't quote that as being the most common thing, uh, the, the most common reason. But what I've seen more is residual cam lesions that still cause symptoms rather than more residual pincer type lesions. Um, but again, uh, any question on the OIT that comes up for why a patient may have failed their initial surgical uh, uh, intervention for FAI, and it's because they just have persistent FAI and they need further treatment. Um, but FAI is not the only reason for labral tears in the hip. They, they can occur in a uh, anatomically normal hip. So what are the symptoms of a labral tear and, and how are they, how is it diagnosed? Yeah. So, you know, patients will typically complain of, you know, anterior groin pain and they may have some mechanical symptoms. They may say, you know, they feel snapping in the hip or clicking in their hip. And when you examine these patients, just similar to when we're talking about one of the uh, nerve entrapment symptoms a little bit earlier with the uh, sciatic nerve. Uh, we talked about the fader test or the flexion, adduction, internal rotation. Uh, this can also cause discomfort in these patients that have flavoral tears. And the, the, the most sensitive and specific test for diagnosing these is going to be an MR arthrogram or magnetic resonance uh, arthrogram where you inject dye into the joint and then get an MRI so you can get a better look at the labrum. And again, you know, the most common area to have these tears are going to be the anterior superior labrum. And how you treat these is you you treat the underlying hip disease, you know, so they may have some vignettes where they show you a patient that has like severe developmental dysplasia of the hip, um, in which cases sometimes those patients, you know, in these young patients with minimal arthritis, sometimes those patients may need further um, surgeries, you know, such as uh, pelvic osteotomies in order to kind of help treat that underlying condition uh, versus if they have a cam or a pincer lesion. Uh, which ends up, you know, leading towards these lateral tears. But you just want to address the underlying hip disease. And, you know, you want to repair the labrum. If it's a labral tear, repair it. 
Um, there, I think there are studies out now before, you know, I think it was thought that you can debreed, you know, most of these, but now I think the pendulum has swung more towards, uh, again, repairing the labrum. So you have inferior results with just debridement alone for these labral tears. So big things to know about is when you're looking at these hip x-rays and evaluating them, um, we talked a little bit earlier about that lateral center edge angle. And you, you know, you want to evaluate these patients to make sure they don't have uh, underlying hip dysplasia, which if that is the case, uh, you may need to treat that dysplasia again with, you know, sometimes osteotomies or if they have underlying um, femoral tabular impingement, you want to address that underlying um, underlying pathology. And I, I think that is, um, I think that's it for, for hip yeah. slash sports pelvis, huh? Yeah, I, I wanted to, to bring up you you definitely hit the hit the nail right on the head. Uh, no pun intended with the uh, nail bit. <laughs> but um, but so so classically, um, hip arthroscopy uh, was they really just addressed the intraarticular uh, disease of the hip. So so the labral tears, the chondral damage, that sort of stuff, um, even in dysplastic hips and what they set what they found was that um those hips readily failed that uh be, because of the dysplasia um they they did not do well so then the pendulum swung to well we're just going to forget about the intraarticular disease and we're just going to get these patients lined up correctly and see how they do. So then they, a lot of uh, hip specialists started doing kind of exclusively pelvic osteotomies and not worrying about the intraarticular pathology. They were just hoping that the rest and uh, activity modification from the pelvic osteotomy was going to be enough to kind of treat their labral tears or labral disease that they had going on in the hip. And, um, those patients did, although they did better than, so the pelvic osteotomy alone patients did better than the hip arthroscopy alone patients. Um, there's a different subgroup and this is where a lot of FAI or, uh, hip arthroscopy literature is going towards right now is the, is the combined treatment. And it's something that we do here locally where, uh, we do the hip scope and uh, repair the labrum or reconstruct the labrum, debride the cartilage, take down some of the, either the cam or pincer lesions. And if they have dysplasia in the same OR setting, uh, once the hip arthroscopy is done, then we'll do a uh, pelvic osteotomy uh, to re-correct uh, their overall alignment too. And those patients are actually doing very well. So I think that that's going to be kind of more standard of care is like you said, you want to treat the underlying pathology. So if it's a dysplastic hip, you need to correct the uh, acetabular uh, alignment along with any labral uh, tears too. So just kind of a side note, I don't know if it'll, if it'll be tested, but uh, just something to kind of keep in mind if you're interested in FAI or interested in, in hip pathology. Yeah, and another thing that I've seen or is a, a, another concept to drive home is that in these patients that have very bad arthritis, like stage three or stage four arthritis, that um, 
in most of these cases, hip arthroscopy is actually uh, may lead again to inferior results. So if you notice, yes. so you're talking about that in the, the underlying pathology. So if you're able to recognize that on x-rays and then you also recognize that they have, uh, you know, bad arthritis, they may not be uh, candidates for hip arthroscopy. And you may be um, talking about kind of some other hip preservation uh, methods, which we uh, may get into in our total joint arthroplasty or, or adult reconstruction um, series. Uh, but for now, we'll, uh, we'll leave it sportsy with the hip arth with the hip scopes. Perfect. All right, we are done with the hip. And uh, on to the next, we will continue on through sports. So we hope you all enjoyed this episode going over some hip stuff and uh, hit that subscribe button. And if you have not already, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Nailed It Ortho. All right, until next time.